Hi, welcome back, and I hope you've enjoyed your holiday season. I'm Jamie, and I am a blues disciple. Please join me now to hear some excellent blues music and to learn a little more about some of the masters of the blues. Blues Disciples is a 501c3 nonprofit organization, and please note that earphones or earbuds do enhance your listening pleasure. A couple of weeks ago, we featured the first part of our friend and frequent co-host, Dr. David Evans' historic trip to Mississippi and Louisiana back in 1966 and 1967 with his fellow student and close friend, Miss Marina Bokelman, as part of David's master's thesis field research while a student at UCLA. David's thesis focused on early blues legend, Mr. Tommy Johnson. Then in the late fall of 2022, David and Marina published a book which followed their adventures as they researched, met, and field recorded some of the amazing music of the many blues and gospel artists they encountered in Louisiana and Mississippi during their 1966 and 67 trips. The book is titled Going Up the Country, Adventures in Blues Fieldwork in the 1960s, and you can buy the book now from University Press of Mississippi at their website. That's www.upress.state.ms.us. Today, we'll share a few of the stories from Dr. Evans and learn about their second field trip in 1967 and some of the adventures and wonderful blues and gospel artists they met, got to know, and recorded along the way. Here, Dr. Evans tells us a little about his preliminary work and research, along with how he and Marina got started on their incredible adventure. Our field trips were for the purpose of studying the process of tradition, how blues artists in a community would learn from one another, how they would create blues using traditional material or sometimes very original musical and lyrical material. It depended, you know, different artists had sometimes different ways of dealing with the blues tradition. And we especially concentrated on the tradition of Tommy Johnson, who appeared to be a very traditional artist but also a very influential one, uh, trying to find out who he was influenced by and also who he influenced. And we had some success in both directions. Our summer 1966 field trip was quite successful, I think. We recorded a lot of great artists, a lot of great blues music and a little bit of gospel and other folk music as well. And learned a lot about the tradition of uh, Tommy Johnson. Uh, We recorded two of his brothers and a number of other uh, relatives and friends of his, and also explored the blues tradition of Bentonia, Mississippi, that uh, Skip James came from. So it was altogether a successful trip. Towards the end of our 1966 trip, we recorded Liddell Johnson, uh, Tommy Johnson's older brother, and he told us about musicians up in the Delta around uh, Drew, Mississippi, Dick Bankston and other musicians. He had known Charlie Patton and Willie Brown and reported that Tommy was influenced by those musicians. So it seemed important that we make another field trip in 1967, concentrating on the Delta, uh, trying to find Dick Bankston and any other musicians in the area around uh, Drew, Cleveland, Dockery, Ruleville, Mississippi, that might have known Charlie Patton and Willie Brown and Tommy Johnson. And so we planned to do that. In the meantime, in California, we recorded Bubba Brown. He was a partner of Tommy Johnson in Jackson, Mississippi, and he had uh, retired from his job at the Knox Glass Company there and moved out to Los Angeles, California. I think a couple of his children had moved out to California before him. And so we got his address from the people at the Knox Glass Company where he had worked, and we tracked him to his apartment in Los Angeles and learned a lot about Tommy Johnson from him. He also gave us a lead to his other old partner in Jackson, uh, Carrie Lee Simmons. And in 1967, we would record uh, Simmons in Jackson too. So lots of leads from one musician leading us to another. 
We visited Casey Douglas in Berkeley, California. Douglas had recorded a couple of albums already containing several of Tommy Johnson's songs, and I interviewed him a little bit about Tommy Johnson and the scene in Jackson, Mississippi in the 1940s, uh, late 30s. And uh, let me see, also Fred McDowell visited us. Uh, Actually, that was in late 1966 after we returned from our field trip, and he gave us some information about musicians in his area, Arthur Turner and Napoleon Strickland. Um, I wasn't able to visit them in 1967 because we spent so much time in the Delta and then revisiting some of our older informants uh, further south in Mississippi and Louisiana. So I, I gave those leads to George Mitchell and he got some spectacular results. He did record it, Arthur and Napoleon, and then they led him to R.L. Burnside and I think some other musicians in the area, uh, Johnny Woods uh, through Burnside and and Fred McDowell. And uh, I gave George some leads to some other musicians as well, Cornelius Bright and Bentonia. And then Robert Johnson, we recorded him in 1967. And George made a second trip to Mississippi in 68 and recorded Johnson again. And so we, we tried to cooperate with other researchers. There were so few of us doing that kind of work back then. So uh, it was important to help each other out. And in fact, uh, I gave George the information about Houston Stackhouse, and he recorded Stackhouse in Helena, Arkansas. And then a few days later, I think about three days later, uh, Marina and I recorded Stackhouse in Crystal Springs, Mississippi, where he had gone. He had grown up in Crystal Springs and was back there visiting and playing music. So it worked out well for both of us, for me and George, and for Stackhouse, the recordings that both of us made kind of broadened Stackhouse's career and put him a little bit on the folk revival circuit. He was one of the last blues musicians in the deep south uh, outside of the cities who was still active and performing. And things were pretty tough in 1967 in the small towns of the south because they were becoming depopulated, you might say, people moving to the cities. There were still active blues scenes in places like Memphis and Jackson, Mississippi, and some of the larger towns like Clarksdale, Cleveland, Mississippi, uh, a little bit. But it was really falling off. The blues scene in the towns was waning at that time. And people like Woodrow Adams in Robinsonville were really having a hard time getting gigs. He said when he did get a gig at a little juke house, uh, everybody wanted him to play James Brown material. And he said he just couldn't. He he couldn't achieve that sound (laughs) with the resources at hand, uh, you know. So he had his little three-piece blues group playing for people who really wanted to hear James Brown, or maybe would uh, rather hear the jukebox than hear live blues by veteran performer like Woodrow Adams. And I'm sure it was the same for Stackhouse as well. They were just having a tough time finding an audience. The Delta especially was becoming depopulated. Sharecropping was just about a thing of the past. There were hardly any sharecroppers. Farming, especially in the Delta, had become quite mechanized by that time. And the landowners, were letting the sharecroppers loose, just basically not renting to them. And they were moving tractor drivers into the shacks that the sharecroppers had occupied. And there was a little bit of the gleaning of the fields after the mechanical cotton pickers had (laughs) done all of the work. And maybe 3% of the cotton was still left on the stalks. And so uh, there were a few jobs doing that. But most of the sharecroppers uh, or former sharecroppers were just heading north to the big cities or scrambling, trying to find jobs in the South or going on welfare, or if they were older, getting on Social Security. And that's just the way it was. People were moving around. A lot of people didn't have addresses. Folks didn't have telephones. And it was very hard to find people, even when you had leads to musicians. A lot of people had moved and people just knew more or less where they were, but didn't have an address or directions or a phone that they could give you to help you out. So you'd have to go to 
some town and ask around. And it was difficult because a lot of people that you would ask had just moved there too. So uh, our 1967 trip had a lot of frustrations to it. and uh, But uh, we did have some success and uh, recorded some good music that year. And 1967, we had our previous field work under the belt, so to speak. So uh, we were, uh, I, I would say, quite experienced uh, field workers. We also had a, a brand new Nagra top of the line tape recorder to use in 1967 that we borrowed from the UCLA folklore and mythology program that we were enrolled in. And that was a great boon to us in our field work. And so, as I said, the Delta in 1967 was quite difficult for finding people. And there were other frustrations too. Our living conditions, we couldn't really find a motel. We wanted to stay in Drew, not knowing that the town had a terrible history of racial problems and violence. There had been a racially motivated murder there a a few years previously. A bunch of white hooligans just murdered a female black high school student, just shot her on the streets. And then, of course, not too many years before that, Till had been murdered right outside of Drew. I I didn't realize that. I I thought it was in another town. But anyway, there were no motels there. So we went over to Cleveland and the motels were either ridiculously expensive or the one in town that was reasonably priced was actually an old hotel. And we would have had to go in and out through the lobby, which had a very nosy person at the desk, you know, lugging recording equipment. And we just didn't want to answer a lot of questions. So we wound up renting a house. It was a real flea bag with rats and roaches. And we spent hours trying to clean the place up with only uh, moderate success. But at least we had a place of our own. (laughs) We used that as our home base for two weeks, enduring the DDT that they sprayed for mosquitoes every night and the sweltering heat. Uh, We uh, purchased a fan, electric fan, but uh, no air conditioning. And it was agony. I mean, this was August in the Mississippi Delta. And it's probably hard to imagine for most of your listeners what that was like, but it was hell. (laughs) Believe me. A couple of months prior to their 1967 field trip back to Louisiana and Mississippi, on June 9, 1967, in Los Angeles, David and Marina met with and recorded this song with Mr. John Henry Bubba Brown and Mr. Brown's son, Mr. Mel Brown. Here's Dr. Evans. Yes, we recorded Bubba Brown three times in the summer of 1967. He had not only retired from his job at the Knox Glass Company, but he had more or less retired from music. He was, I don't know, kind of like a lot of people in retirement. He was just sort of sitting around watching television and just didn't seem (laughs) to be very motivated to do much of anything. I guess he was just glad to be with his children out in LA, but he was sort of like a fish out of water, uh, it seemed to us. And it, it took a while to stimulate him to even get back into music. We had to leave a guitar with him for a while and kind of check up on him to get him to practice. His son, Mel Brown, had quite a successful career in music. Well, he was sort of near the beginning of his career. He had just made a recording with T-Bone Walker. In fact, on one of the sessions, he just came back from the studio to Bubba's place from recording with T-Bone. Later, Mel Brown would have a career under his own name, and he would move to Canada, and he made quite a few albums. But this is one of his early recordings of backing up his father. And I think the attention of Mel and the stimulation that he gave to his father did a lot for motivating Bubba to getting his music back and playing some pretty good tunes for us. And Bubba also had another son, James Brown, and not, of course, the famous James Brown and his famous flames, but James Brown up in uh, San Francisco. He was a pianist, and he had quite a career playing in piano bars, gay bars, especially up in the San Francisco area and Bay Area. And I interviewed him. I never got to record him. He didn't play very much blues material. It was mostly pop hits and audience requests and so on. But he was making a living up in the Bay Area as well. So Bubba was quite proud of his children. I think he had a daughter who did a bit of singing as well in the L.A. area. So he had uh, quite a career in music and was proud of passing it on. Uh, He also had a career in organized labor. He 
organized the first black labor union local in the state of Mississippi at the Knox Glass Company for the Glass Bottle Blowers Union. And he initially got fired for doing so, but he was very well liked uh, by the company and they decided to rehire him and they recognized uh, the union and uh, the uh, national headquarters sent an organizer down there to formally set up the branch that Bubba had informally registered uh, with them. And so he, Bubba wrote poetry and he made up some songs in tribute to his job, the, the Knox Glass Company. Uh, he used to perform at <coughs> company functions and so on. So he had quite an interesting role with his company and in music as well. He, he also told jokes and uh, so on. And he, he was active in the civil rights movement in Mississippi. So uh, quite a personality, uh, quite an important person, I would say, on a number of fronts. And here is Mr. Bubba Brown, along with his son, Mel Brown, performing Sister Kate. Man, if I couldn't sit down with Sister Kate, she got you to get out of home free. All the boys in the neighborhood, she drinks it, but I think I can't take it so good. I'd be up to date and I wouldn't be late. She ain't my name with Sister Kate. The days are not around across the square. See, there's a lazy body down there. He's up there, the big four dudes. Change the jail to let you see some peace. Oh, it's name is just to keep walls. I'll be wild and up today. And if I could, it's Jimmy name of Sister Kate. She could let you get all on the way. All the boys in the neighborhood. On August 13, 1967, David and Marina loaded up his VW Beetle again and headed back to Louisiana and Mississippi for further research, discovery, and field recordings. Now, as we've done in the past, I will give the title of a song that Dr. Evans recorded, and he will share some background on the artist and the song we're playing. So the first two songs focus on Mr. Robert Nighthawk Johnson, and the songs are So Soon I'll Be Home, and you got to give an account. How about So Soon I'll Be Home with Robert Nighthawk Johnson? Yeah, Robert Johnson lived out in the country near a little country town called Skeen, Mississippi, not too far from Cleveland, one of the larger towns in the Delta. Uh, he was a tractor driver, so he was still doing agricultural work, had a large family of young children. I think there were about eight of them and his wife. Uh, he had joined the church. He used to be known as Robert Nighthawk, not the famous Robert Nighthawk, but that was uh, his name. And of course, his real name was Robert Johnson, not the famous uh, Robert Johnson. He had known Charlie Patton in his youth and learned a little bit from him, but mostly had performed more modern blues and then, of course, switched to gospel music. He had a radio program with his children that he played on the Sundays in Cleveland, I guess it was, and very nice guy. And the recording session went very well. All of his children were very well behaved. And there were, however, roosters <laughs> crowing outside. And uh, occasionally there'd be a sound. Some of the younger kids were a little harder to control. This particular piece, uh, So Soon I'll Be at Home, was one that he said he learned from Charlie Patton. Patton, of course, is known for his blues, but he recorded 10 gospel songs. Uh, he did play at church programs. He did some preaching as well. So soon, so soon I'll be at home. So soon, so soon I'll be at home. I be walking, I be talking. So soon, so soon, be at home. 
you got to give an account with Dorothy Lee Johnson, Norma Jean Johnson, Robert Nighthawk Johnson, and Shirley Marie Johnson. Right. These were Robert Johnson's two teenage daughters, and I think maybe his wife. I, I can't remember if it was three daughters or his wife and two daughters, but uh, they were some of the older children, and uh, they often performed with him on his radio show. Uh, this is a very nice gospel standard. Uh, you've got to give an account. Girls had good voices. I don't know whether they continued in gospel or not. I'm glad I was able to record this song. I, I think we recorded one other from the uh, family group. Yes, uh, this was uh, Down Home Electric Delta Blues, 1967. Woodrow was still farming, uh, tractor driving, and his nephew, uh, Curtis Allen, was visiting him, I think from Chicago. Curtis and his family were down there. Curtis was a guitar player. Woodrow played both guitar and harmonica and sang, had a number of original songs as well as ones from Howlin' Wolf. I, I was trying to concentrate on his repertoire from Howlin' Wolf because he knew uh, Wolf in his early days back around the time when Wolf was first recording. And of course, Wolf had known Charlie Patton and Willie Brown. And so I was hoping to tap into that tradition. And uh, I did a little bit, recorded a version of Hitch Up My Pony from Woodrow. But this is How Long, which is, I think, based on Alan Wolf's version of the old Leroy Carr hit. It's kind of a transformation of Leroy Carr's How Long, How Long blues. It's a really primitive sound, and the it was sweltering in there, and they were spraying flit uh, to keep the mosquitoes down, and uh, so you had the smell of the bug spray with all the doors and windows closed, and oh god. <laughs> Oh, 
Good morning, little schoolgirl with Fiddle and Joe Martin. Okay. Well, after we left our two weeks in Cleveland, we went up to Robinsonville in the Delta. Robinsonville, of course, is famous for being the home of uh, Robert Johnson, but it was also a place where Sunhouse and Willie Brown lived. Uh, Willie Brown had moved there sometime in the late 1920s and Sunhouse in 1930. And, and then, of course, Robert Johnson learned under them. Sunhouse had formed a string band with Willie Brown on second guitar and Fiddlin' Joe Martin playing bass violin, bass fiddle, as well as mandolin switching off to that. Then they had a harmonica player with them, too, Leroy Williams. Uh, sometimes he had a trombone player and a drummer with him. So uh, sort of a prototype of a modern 
blues band. And the son, of course, moved north to Rochester, New York, and Willie Brown passed away. But Fiddle and Joe was still there in the area. And I wanted to interview him about Sunhouse and Willie Brown and others. It uh, turned out that he had grown up in Mound Bayou, Mississippi, and he knew some other older musicians, uh, Charlie Patton a little bit, Walter Rhodes, the crowing rooster, the accordion player of the Delta, people like that. So he was quite an important performer uh, and informant. Uh, Fiddle and Joe could not really play guitar very much. He'd sort of given it up because he burned his hand very badly in a tractor fire, and it made it impossible to make some chords on the guitar. So he switched to drums to stay active in music, and he played drums with Howlin' Wolf. Um, Wolf lived in Robinsonville for a time in the 1940s, and then he was still playing with Woodrow Adams. Played with Memphis Minnie for a time, too, after she moved back to the Memphis area in the or, or would visit there in the early 1950s. In fact, he tried to record with her and little son Joe. Uh, I guess he played drums with them in the early 1950s. They went to Jackson, and he said, we recorded for a lady in Jackson. Well, that could only have been Lillian McMurray of Trumpet Records in Jackson. And apparently, Memphis Minnie made a test session for Lillian McMurray, but she wanted something more modern. Modern, and I guess she settled on Sonny Boy Williamson, and she threw out all of her test recordings. Which wow. Is, uh, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> Can you imagine uh. what, what might have been there? Anyway, <laughs> Fiddle and Joe was a great help in leading us to Woodrow Adams, but he did record one song on guitar. It was one that he had learned from the Memphis Mini. Good morning, little schoolgirl. Although the song was a Sonny Boy Williamson piece, but Memphis Minnie used the a similar melody and worked out a guitar part for Me and My Chauffeur that she recorded in the early 40s with Little Son Joe. Uh, Fiddle and Joe Martin got the guitar part from her and adapted it back to the the song with the same melody, uh, Good Morning Little Schoolgirl. So we did at least get that one song from him on guitar, but he had a hard time playing it, but uh, uh, he obliged and uh, did a good job with it. Good morning, little schoolgirl. Good morning, little schoolgirl. Can I go home? Can I go Then your father, I am a disgrace. I don't know how I don't know how they what in the water, what in the Bye Bye Blues with Houston Stackhouse. 
Yeah, Houston Stackhouse doing a, a Tommy Johnson song, Bye and Bye Blues, or Bye Bye Blues, as it was titled on Tommy's uh, Victor recording from 1928. Stackhouse had been a neighbor of the Johnson family and knew Tommy Johnson, learned a number of songs from him. Tommy was somewhat older than Stackhouse and was a star by 1928 when he first recorded. And so Stackhouse learned a lot of his songs and stayed in touch with Tommy and Tommy's uh, brother. Brothers Major, who, of course, was uh, still living, uh, Clarence Johnson, who uh, died in the early 1940s. Uh, he was murdered. And fortunately, when we visited Major Johnson again in 1967, a stackhouse was in town and was visiting. And another local musician in town named Kerry Mason, Diddy Mason, they called him, came over to the session and played second guitar with Stackhouse, or sometimes Stackhouse would play second guitar behind Mason. And then Major Johnson would join in on a few pieces, too. I was trying to get Stackhouse's early repertoire, especially his pieces from Tommy Johnson and even Charlie Patton. He knew Patton a little bit and played a version of Pony Blues as well. Stackhouse tended to modernize his songs a little bit and play some lead guitar licks as well. And uh, of course, you know, he was still active in the contemporary blues scene, so it's not surprising that he would modernize, but he could play in the old style as well. And so this was an interesting synthesis of traditional and modern. This is with electric guitar. Major, of course, is playing traveling blues. It's related to the piece that Tommy Johnson recorded as Maggie Campbell Blues. He recorded another similar piece to it called Riding Horse Blues for Paramount Records in 1930. And it's similar to a number of pieces that Charlie Patton recorded in open G tuning. The first piece that he played, uh, Screaming and Hollering the Blues, uh, and a number of other pieces that Patton recorded. Willie Brown.
Brown's Future Blues. So Tommy and all of his brothers, including Major, played this piece using traditional lyrics. And Major called it Traveling Blues with his verse, I'm a traveling man and sure got a traveling mind. Next song is I Hate to Hear My Good Girl Call My Name with Mr. Kerry Diddy Mason. This is Kerry Mason with Stackhouse playing the second guitar behind him. Kerry Mason had a very strange electric guitar. He seemed to have built it himself out of pieces of other guitars, but it had a nice sound to it. It was a big, monstrous thing. But he had a very nice voice. He was a quiet fellow and nice guy. This session was kind of unusual. It was at Major Johnson's house. There had been a funeral scheduled for that day of someone in the community, and Major's wife and her sister uh, were uh, going to it. And so all of the ladies vacated the place. Uh, Major was reluctant to play blues while the funeral was going on. And so we were going to wait until the ladies came back from the funeral. But they, uh, we were just sitting around and they decided, uh, got a little thirsty, I think, <laughs> as it was, uh, and uh, sent out for a little moonshine. I think it was on a Sunday. In fact, the Labor Day weekend, I believe it was. But they got some from a bootlegger, actually some sealed whiskey. But they came back and we just decided, they decided to go ahead anyway. And it was kind of good because we didn't have anybody else there but the musicians. So we could record under optimum conditions and <clears throat> had a very nice session, uh, mostly with Stackhouse, but a few nice songs from Carrie Mason and uh, one or two from uh, Major Johnson. I got a woman boogies all night long Well, I got a woman boogies all night long Whenever she boogies some man will leave his home Got up this morning, did my morning prayer Well, I got up this morning, said my morning prayer 
I got to thinking about a brown-skinned woman Boy, she was over there Stackhouse Boogie with Houston Stackhouse. The Stackhouse Boogie, of course, is uh, one of those kinds of pieces that you often open up a set with, uh, you know, get people in the mood, uh, play an instrumental, and then you go into the vocals after everybody's kind of gotten in the blues feeling. Catfish Blues with Gary Lee Simmons. Gary Lee Simmons was the main partner of Bubba Brown, and it was through Bubba that we found him. In fact, Bubba called him up on one of our visits to him in Los Angeles, got his address and contact information, told them we were coming, and sure enough, we did. We stayed in Jackson, used that as a headquarters to visit Jack Owens again in Bentonia and Major Johnson in Crystal Springs, as well as Major's brother, Liddell Johnson in Jackson and Mott Willis, uh, we found in Crystal Springs too. They were all right nearby. So Jackson was a good headquarters for our work in central Mississippi. And so we visited Carrie Lee Simmons. 
Carrie was a great jokester, like Bubba Brown, but perhaps even more so. And uh, it was hard to get him to calm down. He liked to laugh at himself and tell jokes. And then his half-brother, who was even more of a jokester and a clown and had been drinking a little bit, uh, came over in the middle of the session. And it was a really difficult session to actually get some good recording. And we didn't really get an adequate interview from him, which was a great regret of mine and never got to see him again. I'm not sure. I think he passed away not too many years after that. We recorded a few nice songs from him. This one, Catfish Blues, which was, I think, very traditional. And I think he said that he had learned it from Tommy Johnson. Of course, it was popularized in 1941 by Robert Petway. Carrie Lee Simmons, uh, another important artist from the Jackson, Mississippi scene. I'd rather be a catfish swimming in the deep blue sea. Some nice tease of brown woman fishing out, fishing out. If you be my baby I'll tell her what I'll do I will rob and steal it around world around world I'd rather be a catfish swimming in the Deep blue sea, some nice tease a brown woman fishing there, fishing there, fishing there. Now, as we start to wrap up this selection of stories, artists, and songs from Marina and David's 1967 field trip to Louisiana and Mississippi, I want to remind you again that Marina and David's book, Going Up the Country, Adventures in Blues Fieldwork in the 1960s, can be purchased from University Press of Mississippi at their website at www.upress.state.ms.us. Now, here's Dr. Evans to tell us about recording these last two songs with Mr. Babe Stovall and Mr. Herb Quinn. And I want to thank you again for listening. Herb Quinn was the dean of musicians from Tylertown, Mississippi, in the southern part of the state. Babe Stovall was a little bit younger. He was born, I think, in 1909, and Herb was born in 1898. Babe had kind of learned guitar under Herb Quinn and played with Herb for many years, probably starting in the late 30s and through the 40s and early 50s. Most of the musicians, including Babe and Herb, had from Tylertown had moved across the state line to Louisiana, to places like Clifton, Franklinton, Bogalusa, or even to New Orleans. Uh, Babe had become a street musician in New Orleans and hadn't played with Herb Quinn in several years. And so I brought Babe back up to join Herb in Clifton, where Herb had a farm. And they were very glad to see one another and spent a lot of time talking and reminiscing, which <laughs> meant that I didn't record very many pieces. In fact, I think I only recorded four tunes that day, but they were all great, and these were two of them. C.C. Ryder was one of Babe's favorite pieces. He had learned it traditionally. It's a tune that was first recorded by Ma Rainey in 1924 or 25, I believe it was, but Babe had a traditional version with some different verses, but with the familiar melody and Herb playing mandolin with him. And then Sweet Bunch of Daisies was a uh, waltz that they had played in the string band format back in the old days. A number of uh, hillbilly bands played that. I forget the band that had a hit of Sweet Bunch of Daisies, popular with black musicians as well. So this was typical of the music of Tylertown. Uh, Tommy Johnson had moved to Tylertown for a few years in the late 1920s and perhaps into the early 1930s. He married a woman from that area. And 
and so that's how Babe and uh, Herb came in contact with him, and some of Tommy's uh, music entered into the Tylertown tradition as well. Uh, we documented a lot of that, especially back in 1966, but uh, I, I tried to follow up a little bit in 67 with uh, this session of uh, Babe and uh, Herb Quinn, and it, it was a wonderful session. I just wish I could have recorded more songs uh, in it, because they were both in top form. Yeah. 